Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We're going to be talking about the three B's tonight. The three B's are on the show. And no, I'm, one of them is not B-Lo. Although if you want to talk about B-Lo, you can call me. I may even talk about myself in the third person. And um, we can get to the calls early tonight. But no, the three B's tonight would be beer, beef, and bull crap. That would be right. Beer, beef, and bullcrap. What's the bullcrap? But that's the liberals, of course. Um, don't know if you heard today, but there's new surplus numbers out. Remember the liberals kept claiming that Harper and the conservatives left them a deficit? Eh, no. No, 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 no. And we've got new numbers from the finance department to prove it. Not my numbers. Not the conservative numbers. Not the Fraser Institute numbers. We've got actual numbers from Bill Morneau's officials. (sighs) Maybe you've heard them already. We'll get into that a little later on. Also sticking on this beef issue. You know, there's two restaurants in town that are owned by this chain, Earl's, that says they will not, the parent company for their main chain, Earl's, will not serve Canadian beef because it's not, doesn't have the seal of approval of this outfit in Virginia. So they're sourcing all their beef from Kansas, even though their main area is is Western Canada. Well, there's a lot of beef farmers in the Ottawa area. I reached out to the, uh, the Cattlemen's Association today. We've got somebody from there coming on, and we'll talk about that. But right now, though, let's talk about the other beer, B issue, and that would be beer. Beer. Homer Simpson, always one with the issue of beer, right? I mean, he even, they even had a song about it on The Simpsons when it came to Duff's beer. Oh, what is the malted liquor? What gets you drunker quicker? What comes in bottles or in cans? Beer! Can't get enough of it. Beer! How we really love it. Beer! Makes me think I'm a man. Beer! I could kiss and hug it, beer! but I'd rather chug it. Beer! Cut my belly out to here. Beer! I could not refuse it. I could really use a beer. beer! Why beer! am I celebrating beer today? Beer! beer! I mean, it's Friday, I guess. Uh, Lots of people would be celebrating beer. But there's a constitutional reason to celebrate beer tonight. A man from New Brunswick who decided he was going to load up his truck with a pile of cases of beer and, well, from Quebec and then drive back home has, well, his fight has resulted in a landmark ruling today. And, And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly at all. We're talking about, let me just pull up his name here because we've got his lawyer's name and everybody else in the, the way. <laughs> Sorry, we got to turn off that song. It's distracting me. Uh, but uh, Judge Ronald LeBlanc, LeBlanc agreed with the arguments that these interprovincial beer barriers brought in by the various provinces, actually violate the Constitution. And this was not a charter ruling. This was an, an old, rarely used section of the Constitution that says anything manufactured in one part of Confederation 
can move freely to the other parts. In the 87-page ruling, Justice LeBlanc said that uh, that historical context leads only to one conclusion. The Fathers of Confederation wanted to implement free trade as between the provinces of the newly formed Canada. So he struck down this provincial law in New Brunswick that says you can't have more than 12 pints of beer from another province unless you import it through the provincial liquor monopoly. Guess what? We have similar we have similar laws in Ontario. So everybody that goes over and fills up their trunk with beer in Quebec goes over to Hull and does this, they're breaking the law. Now, when this court case came up back in the summer, I checked with the province of Ontario and found out that while, yes, it is against the law, they don't actually enforce it and there's no, uh, no penalty. No penalty at all. But it's against the law. This court ruling today strikes down interprovincial trade barriers. Maybe they'll continue to exist for things like insurance or regulated services. But anything that is in the, the realm of manufactured goods, we're now going to have free trade inside Canada, which, believe it or not, we haven't had, and not just on issues like beer. All because a retired guy named Gerard Como got annoyed at having his beer confiscated and being fined $292. All because he decided, you know what? This is Canada. I bought the beer in Canada. I shouldn't be facing charges. All because of that, he was able to strike down a law. Now, he had help. Different people came forward and decided that they were going to back him on this. Organizations, I think the Canadian Constitution Foundation may have chipped in on this. Other people raised money to make sure he had good legal counsel. They fought it on constitutional grounds of what the, the Articles of Confederation actually said and won. This should change everything, whether we're talking about milk, whether we're talking about beer, wine, cheese, all these protected industries that provinces try to set up to block competition from other provinces could be struck down as a result of this. So we're probably going to see some powerful organizations try and, uh, try and, and fight this. But today... Gerard Como gets his beer back. Three years later, he gets his beer back, and he doesn't have to pay the $292 fine, and hopefully the judge makes them pay court costs. Hopefully they make them pay court costs. Because this has been a crazy rule for a long time, especially in this area. We all know what happens. The Quebec civil servants that come across to Ottawa to work, what do they buy here? They buy wine. Why? Wine's cheaper in Ontario. And many of them tell me they like the selection at the LCBO better. Or they like going to the little wine shops like the one around the corner. But everyone from Ontario goes across and buys beer in Quebec. Why? It's cheaper. And guess what? There's a lot of selection as well. But it's been illegal this entire time. 
until now. We'll probably have the provinces step in and say, well, that only applies between New Brunswick and Quebec. If they do, call bullcrap on them, because it is. There was an attempt a few years ago in Parliament to say uh, it was the Free My Grapes campaign. They wanted to make it so that uh, you could order wine from another part of the country and have it delivered because it, it is actually easier to get wine from anywhere in the world than it is to get wine from another part of the country. It's easier to get imported wine in Ontario than it is to get BC wine. And I'm told some of the BC wine is fantastic, but you can't get a whole lot of it here. In BC, they can't get Ontario wine very easily. I remember being in Quebec, and it was listed under Diverpe, other countries. Tiny little selection. So there was this push to say, all right, free the grapes. You can order. You can order and have it shipped to you directly. Guess what? All the provinces, a lot of them, jumped in and said, no, you've got to order through us. This would appear to be saying, no, that would be a trade violation. Must be admitted freely. Must be admitted freely. That's how I'm going to take it. So tomorrow, if I wanted to get up and go online and order from Mission Hill, I should be able to go on. You know, sure, they can make me prove my age, but then it gets shipped to me. They want to verify that I'm of age to buy? That's fine. Then it gets shipped to me. I shouldn't have to go through the province. That's what this court ruling says. That is one of the three B's that we're going to be talking about tonight. The other one being beef, and then the third one being bull crap. Not the kind that comes from the beef, the kind that comes from Justin Trudeau and the liberals. Caught lying yet again. Will they admit the truth this time? We'll find out next week when the House comes back, or perhaps somebody caught up with the finance minister already, and I haven't seen it. But we'll get into that shortly. We'll get to the phone calls early tonight, just after the top of the next hour. And uh, we'll, you, know, you want to email me in between? Beyond the news at CFRA.com. I'm Brian Lilly. This is News Talk 580 CFRA. Listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. You know what? I love Donald Trump for one thing. Holding rallies on Fridays gives us something to talk about. And we may end up having to go live to some coverage later on. I'll be keeping an eye out for that throughout the evening. But uh, we'll get to what's going on with Trump in a minute. Right now, one of the things I'm sick of is hearing politicians stand up and saying, Oh, we've talked to the oil industry and what they want is a price on carbon. The oil industry is in agreement with us. And you never hear the oil industry executive step up and, and say, uh, No, hold on a minute. You never hear the oil industry executive say, That's not exactly true. What we want to know is where are you going so that we can plan. What we want is stability. Because at the end of the day, all all the industry wants is to say, what are the rules we're playing by? 
so that we know what what kind of cost we're going to face, what we're going to need to charge our customers. We're signing long-term contracts. Tell us if things are going to change. That's what they're truly saying. They're not out there campaigning for a carbon tax. They're not out there campaigning saying, make our products more expensive. So now, two executives, chief executives at two of the biggest energy companies in the country are stepping forward to say they actually disagree with federal and provincial government moves to toughen emission-based regulations. Imperial Oil CEO Rich Kruger weighed in on Alberta's 100 megaton annual hard cap on oil sands emissions earlier. Our personal view is we didn't think the cap was necessary. We think that with existing regulatory practices and procedures that the, the drive to improve overall environmental performance, there are other ways to do it. And then Russ Gerling, the CEO of TransCanada, said he doesn't agree with the new federal requirements to account for oil production emissions when reviewing pipelines such as Energy East. There's the, the downstream, upstream emissions. They just keep coming up with new ways to try and stymie one of our most important industries. Much like Kathleen Wynne, and I talked about this last night, the premier of the province that is the birthplace of the auto industry in this country and remains. It remains a vital part of the auto industry, but what, what's Kathleen Wynne doing? She's trying to shut the auto industry down. How? Coming out because of climate change. She's saying it's got to do with climate change. So she's coming out with new regulations all the time. Thought that was an important story to bring to you because you, you too often just hear that industry's behind government. Uh, let's skip ahead to, uh, to Donald Trump now. Uh, he's got a ro- rally going on in San Francisco. And they're so determined to shut him down that they blockade, they blocked the road. What'd Trump do? He got out and walked in. These people, they don't realize in trying to shut down Trump everywhere he goes and being obnoxious about it, they don't realize that they're going to make people say, you know what, I'll back him. I mean, Maybe they don't like everything about him, but they're making me sympathetic to Donald Trump. So you got hundreds of these anti-Trump protesters attempting to storm the California Republican Convention this afternoon. It's not even just a Trump event. It's the California Republican Convention. Uh, Reporter Josh Haskell was outside and says there's demonstrators from multiple groups trying to blockade the hotel where Trump was addressing the convention. Quite a scene at the Hyatt Regency as about 300 protesters were just so determined to get inside the hotel. But police and riot gear from San Francisco and neighboring districts formed a circle around the hotel, not allowing protesters inside. Wherever the protesters went, police were waiting for them, blocking entrances, formed in a line, wearing riot gear. Yeah, and my understanding is that some did get in. Now, protester Yvette Ferlaka, Lerlarka, uh was outside, and she, fine, she doesn't think Donald Trump's the right person to lead the United States. Um, that's fine, but she turns around and just says, he's racist and he's making other people racist. Really? We're here to stop Donald Trump and to make clear that we're building a movement that's going to take direct action to stop his racist demagoguery 
and the ways in which he's been encouraging racist attacks. Demagogery. If you're going to denounce someone, learn how to speak. That's, that's one thing. Learn how to speak. But she just wants to call Donald Trump racist. All right. So do others. I'm sure she was standing next to this other one that uh, AP found. Uh, Angela Dansev also says, uh, you know what? Trump's just a bigot. Donald Trump is using this political platform to really draw out the hatred, uh, you know, from far right wing people in this country. Hatred from far right wing people. It sounds like they've got a problem with hatred. Now, Trump brought up the issue of Mexicans and illegal immigrants last year. And that's what everyone points to. And they say that's proof that he's racist. You know, the, he announced just after stories like this came out, and I wrote about this a lot. Kate Steinle, a woman from San Francisco, shot by an illegal immigrant who'd been ordered deported five times. Five times. He'd been deported. He had been in police custody. He was let go. And he was in a sanctuary city, San Francisco. Kate Steinle, beautiful young woman, shot and killed while just out for a walk with her parents. There were so many stories like that last summer. It's unbelievable. Donald Trump could point to this and say uh, that Juan Lopez Sanchez, he's the reason for this. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. On News Talk 580 CFRA. We've been talking about this story for the past couple of days. A restaurant chain based in Western Canada, although I've since found out they have some, they do have a local presence. In fact, they own the restaurant local down in Lansdowne. They also own Joey's. I'm talking about Earl's. And Earl's is a major chain in Western Canada, started in Edmonton, Alberta, heart of beef country in Canada, and for some reason decided they would no longer carry Canadian beef. Uh, Tom Lynch Staunton is with the Cattlemen's Association of Canada, joins me now from Edmonton. And, uh, sir, thanks for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on because I've been listening to the debate around this and um, even heard an interview that uh, that Earl's gave defending their position and to me, it just really comes across as saying the way that beef in Canada is raised, if you do not have this designation, that somehow the beef is raised inhumanely. How do you react when those insinuations or sometimes outright allegations are made? Well, that's a, it's a good question. And uh, I know, you know, we're, we're quite disappointed um, with that. And, and, uh, primarily, just as you said, with that implication that that uh, we're not raising our cattle as humanely as what this certification tells us, and the fact the fact is is that uh, we have some of the highest standards in Canada. We have a Canadian beef code of practice uh, for the care and handling of cattle. Um, very high standards in there, and I would suggest that although we don't have the actual certification stamp that the majority, um, large majority of our producers in Canada um, uh, not only meet those standards that we've put together with health professionals, with um, animal welfare specialists and, and uh, academics, um, 
with veterinarians, with industry, and with government, uh, that we're actually exceeding those those standards that we've put in place. And uh, but but you don't have this designation, which if all of your producers were to get, would cost them a fair bit of money, wouldn't it? Well, it would. Uh, my understanding, uh, I don't know how much the certification and audit process costs with the certified humane um, label, um, but yeah, it, it would cost some money. Um, you know, we're not disagreeing that everybody should be raising their animals humanely and with utmost care. And we Oh, and, we, and neither am I when, yeah. when I've been speaking out against this. I, I just happen to think that, for, you know, we might find an exception. But I, I, my guess is, and, and you have greater experience than I do, sir, that this is an industry with you, you look after your animals. That is your livelihood. And if, you're, if you are mistreating your animals or they're ill – you're not going to be making money. So it's it's in your best interest to look after them, to treat them right. Absolutely. Um, we take a lot of pride in how we care for animals. Um, we're learning all the time on how to even do it better. Um, we've got a lot of uh, programs uh, in development to to keep moving forward on how best to, to care for our animals and make sure they have the best life possible. So so absolutely, you're you're correct on that one. Some of the uh, claims, and, and there are other restaurants doing this as well, saying um, our, our beef raised without hormones, our beef raised without steroids. Is it normal practice for beef in Canada to, to be getting steroids or horm- hormonal treatments? Um, it, it is normal practice. Um, and and there's, it's, it's really interesting about, about hormones. So, so we need to have a discussion with, uh, and a frank discussion with, with our consumers, with the public about, about how we use these. We use these very responsibly. Um, for example, a hormone implant is a small pellet that, that's inserted under the skin behind the ear and it's slowly released. And what the hormone implant does is it, it promotes um, feed efficiency. So every mouthful of feed that that animal eats uh, will go into muscle rather than into uh, either into the air through methane or, or out the back end. And um, what we have to understand is that that's created an efficiency of about 25%, which has tremendous environmental impacts for every single kilogram of beef we produce. So, so we can get rid of hormones. Um, um, it, it, it's uh, something that we can do. Um, but the consumer has to understand that, that yes, we will be using more land, we'll be using more resources, uh, we'll have a greater environmental impact, um, as well as the price will go up because uh, to the consumer because it will cost a little bit more. Um, but we have to have that discussion, and if it, if it ultimately, if the consumer is okay with those consequences of not using a growth hormone, then, then ultimately the industry will change. All right. In terms of antibiotics... My understanding is that antibiotics are used on animals that are sick. Would yep, that would true. that be accurate, or is it just mixed in with the feed on at every feed time? Uh, it's uh, it can be both. So um, uh, because this is one of the claims from Earls is that uh, the other beef is just filled with uh, antibiotics, and that's no good for anyone. <laughs> so that so that claim in itself is not true at all. So. So all beef in Canada is antibiotic-free, whether that animal's been given an antibiotic or not is, uh, how, is the how's question. How's that? 
that's because um, we have, we're under very strict guidelines whenever we administer an antibiotic mm-hmm. uh, with withdrawal times about when the animal is given an antibiotic, when it's metabolized uh, in the animal, and then when we, we can slaughter it for meat. And, th- and that um, withdrawal time can be up to a couple months. And so there's also strict testing through CFIA uh, at our slaughter facilities uh, that they randomly test meat to look for antibiotic residuals in the meat. Um, 99.99% of beef is uh, indetectable, so there's no residuals. What they do find every so often uh, doesn't go into the food chain. So we have very, very good test and and they find that, then it's put aside. Absolutely. Have you been getting a lot of uh, public support for Canadian beef? We've been having a tremendous amount of support. We're we're quite taken aback by it, and uh, we're really appreciative of of the support we have. and And uh, this is an opportunity for me to personally thank uh, our consumers for for the support they've been giving us. All right. Well, uh, thanks for the time, and uh, thanks for what you and uh, your members do. Because I happen to love beef, and uh, I'll find out if the local restaurants that are, are owned, their parent company is Earl's, I'll find out if uh, if they're following suit. I have not heard yet, but uh, we'll continue to monitor this story. Uh, Tom Lynch-Staunton is with the uh, Canadian Cattlemen's Association, joining us tonight from Edmonton. That, unfortunately, is not the only attack that's going on on beef, by the way. It's not just as restaurants saying, well, is it an attack on beef? They're, they want the beef treated a certain way, and... You, you heard him. The industry here says we already do. We exceed often those situations. Does all of our food have to have these, these certification labels on it that cost money? The other attack that, that I want to tell you about is the claim that we need to tax beef because it's bad for the environment. And this is going on in Denmark right now. Headline, Denmark could hike tax on red meat in uh, bid to boost vegetarianism to help the environment. That's right. The Danish government has to consider a proposal to do so after the Danish Council of Ethics recommended an initial tax on beef and then rolling out the tax to all red meats in the future. This has come up in Britain. This has been recommended by activist groups. You can be sure that it will be recommended here. And when you've got JT leading the country federally and Kathleen Wynne in Ontario and you've got Rachel Notley out there in Alberta, don't be surprised if this gains traction here. The federal government's new push is on methane. But back to these issues of uh, these certifications. This costs money for the... The farmers, the growers that have to do this, and if you're a smaller operation, can you afford it? Or if you're a really big operation, it's going to add to your cost, so that means that they've got to add it to your cost. Who gets rich off of that? The store doesn't, actually. The farmer doesn't get rich. It becomes these organizations that go around and develop these certifications. They develop the certifications. They go to you and say, hey, let us certify you. You can have our stamp of approval, and then you can, you can sell your product. 
No one else is allowed to put that on there unless they've paid the organization. That's fine. That's that's free market. But what does it actually mean? Speaking with my parents tonight, they met a um, a retiree when they were down in Florida. They're just back, up visiting, got my cigars. But they mentioned uh, running into this guy that runs a small vineyard in the Niagara region while they're in Florida. He was down vacationing. He's too small for VQA because he can't afford it. VQA is the Vintners Quality Alliance. It's another one of these certifications. But I, I remember several years ago, Lawrence Solomon, who writes often in the National and uh, Financial Post comment section, had this study about the different certifications that go on to coffee. Lawrence Solomon's actually worked in the coffee business before. As he writes, um, he says, I speak as someone who's had contact with various third world producers in my capacity as president of Green Beanery, a company I founded seven years ago to raise funds for Energy Probe Research Foundation, a federal charity I manage. Green Beanery sells more varieties of coffee, including fair trade and organic coffees, than any other company in Canada, giving me occasion to witness the nature of the fair trade business and fear, hear firsthand of its impact on small producers that supply us. The fair trade business is filled with contradictions. For starters, it discriminates against the very poorest of the world's coffee farmers, most of whom are African, by requiring them to pay high certification fees. These fees, one of the factors that the German study cites as contributing to the farmers' impoverishment, are especially perverse given that the majority of third-world farmers are not only too poor to pay the certification fees, they're also too poor to pay for fertilizers and pesticides that would disqualify their coffee as certified organic. I don't think that our farmers are too poor, but this is a bit of a racket that we're getting into. Do you think that our beef industry is inhumane? Because that's the allegation. One of the questions that I'll put to you when we get to calls at the top of the hour. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. I'm laughing at all the emails the liberals are sending me because it's it's towards the end of the month and they've got fundraising goals they want to meet and uh, they want to know why I haven't donated to them yet. Why haven't you donated? We'll send you stickers about Justin and his sunny ways. Yeah, not going to happen. Before he was selling uh, cars at Capital Dodge, Jim Durrell had a full life in business. He had a full life as a politician, he's been on the, the board of the Ottawa airport. Importantly, though, he was mayor during the time when the city got the Ottawa senators. And so he was intimately involved in the whole argument around where the team should be located, where the arena should be, all of that fight, which ultimately resulted in things moving west. For the Redux today, Evan Solomon's interview with Jim Durrell on yesterday's NCC decision. What was your reaction when you found out that um, Eugene Melnick and the Rendezvous Le Breton team won? Uh, I thought it was it was as exciting news as uh, back in December 6, 1990, when we won the franchise. And uh, 
this, but it's way beyond hockey too, Evan. This, uh, and you, you've talked about this development. This is a life. This is a real game changer for a generation of young Ottawans that are going to come along. Uh, because in our city, when you look at our downtown, you kind of have the market, which has been there for 150 years, and it's uh, one of the, I call it kind of the eastern anchor of our downtown. And, and downtowns define cities, not with great respect to suburbs, and I now live in the suburbs, but it's your downtown that defines the city and, and its culture. And uh, then you kind of move, as you move west, you, you hit the parliamentary precinct, and it, it's in its own right spectacular. Uh, uh, the parliament buildings are, uh, you know, speak volumes to the history of our country. But when you moved east from there, or west from there, there was this fallow land, and we're going to have an enormously exciting uh, city, mini city built, basically being built there that happens to have a uh, will happen to have a great arena with a hockey team, but the, uh, all the other things that are going to be built there, quite frankly, uh, are going to wow the public enormously. Yeah, it's going to be a massive development, and and it really does, by the way, make Eugene Melnick, who's been a major part of the city because, of course, he's the Sens' owner, but now he essentially becomes one of the biggest, if not the biggest developer in the city because he's got LeBreton Flats that he's spearheading, and there will be the redevelopment of an even bigger parcel of land in Canada, and these are moments where cities have a, have a genuine opportunity to not do something incremental. But this is about vision, isn't it? Well, it is, but quite frankly, and this is not to diminish uh, Eugene's role in this with the Sens, but um, the, the, this entire development is largely made possible because of a gentleman by the name of John Ruddy who is quietly behind the scenes. He owns Trinity uh, Corporation, one of the largest commercial uh, developers, real estate developers in, in the country. And John is a wonderful Ottawa citizen, a great philanthropist in Ottawa. And John is the, along with uh, Graham Bird uh, they, and, and many others, have put together an outstanding team that have really ostensibly designed uh, the rendezvous plan with all of the commercial neighborhoods. And, and that's what impressed the NCC the most. And they made their decision, quite frankly, Evan, on the total plan that you and I get caught up in the excitement of the hockey team. Yeah, but, but you're that, right. That decision was made because of everything else. The hockey team was kind of the cherry uh, on top of the uh, Sunday, you know. And what do you the, think? What what was lacking in the other bid? Do you think? As, as I speak to Jim Durrell, former Ottawa mayor, what do you think the other bid missed out on when you looked at the NCC scores? Well, the other bid was spectacular, uh, and and uh, I thought it it had it brought a. It was, it was more, uh, I would use the words, of a national bid. It was, you know, with more of an emphasis, it appeared to me, on museums. And um, it, 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 what it lacked was the city-building aspect, in my humble opinion. It wasn't, it wasn't quite as humble as Rendezvous Le Breton, which is spectacular, but was focused on building a better Ottawa. I think their bid was focused on, on Canada more, and... When the NCC, in their wisdom, looked at this and, and looked at the two plans, and as they said, both were deserving, and they were. Uh, I, I even hesitate, and I hate to even be critical of, of uh, the Devoncore plan because I thought it was brilliant, and one of their lead architects, uh, Richard Brisbane, is as fine an architect as you'll find in Canada. So when I, I looked at their plan, it wasn't that it was 
I just think that Ron DeVillo-Breton emphasized the community aspect, the, the what would make uh, Ottawa a more livable, great city. And, uh, yeah. and I think that's what really won the day. You know, I'm speaking to Jim Durrell, former Ottawa mayor, about the um, the LeBreton flat and the rendezvous LeBreton uh, redevelopment. You know, you've been through these kind of big developments before. What's the biggest challenge ahead? You know, you've got now rendezvous LeBreton negotiating with the NCC, then they'll have to get federal approval. There's a process here. But what are the biggest challenges in getting this right? Well, you've just talked about the number of levels of government that are going to be involved, Evan. And one, you have the National Capital Commission, who uh, this are going to uh, obviously watch it and be very careful in what they approve. You're going to have the city of Ottawa with building permits. You've got the federal government with the contamination uh, issue, which is, is major. And so uh, there is going to have to be a, for lack of a better word, a come-to-Jesus meeting with the three levels of government as they assess how much financial assistance they're going to want to put up because if they did it on their own it would cost them a fortune so by having rendezvous or devoncore having done this uh, they'll be able to for instance take care of the contaminated lands for far less than if they did it themselves right so there uh, it's it, this will be a very detailed and and onerous process and, and frankly um there's nothing wrong with that, uh, uh, you know. As long as uh, as long as everybody is pretty transparent in how they're operating here, um, I know that both the bids had highly, highly reputable firms behind them. I, you know, I, <clears throat> I look at PCL was behind Rendezvous Le Breton, and they're yeah. the largest builder in Canada. And, and again, good philanthropists and have always cared in the city they worked in. So, when you've got quality people doing things, you should be able to come to a consensus. It won't yeah, always be easy, and sometimes uh, Rendezvous Le Breton will disagree, and sometimes the NCC will disagree, but in the end, they should all come to a consensus. I'm, I'm confident of that. All right. A, a historical perspective. You know, Jim Durrell there at the original discussions. Good to hear that. Uh, we will go to the phone calls when we get back. We'll go to what you want to talk about, a free-for-all Friday. 521-TALK, 521-8255, but I'll also bring you the, the third B, not the beer, not the beef, but the bull crap. That's right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. You know what I'd like the, the government of the day to give me? The truth. The truth on issues such as, well, do we have a surplus or don't we have a surplus? Because the liberals continue to claim, and this is the bull crap section of the show. You want to join in on one of the other two Bs, beer or beef? Maybe you want to join in on bull crap. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Brian Lilly here with you until 10 p.m. tonight. And if you're listening on the podcast, well, time means nothing. If you haven't checked out the podcast, do that. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud. Find it on my social media. But the liberals continue to claim that 
The conservatives left a deficit. They were reckless with the economy, and they left a deficit. They didn't look after Canada's books. They were reckless. Okay. Last week, we had the parliamentary budget officer once again say no. There was a surplus, which led Rana Ambrose to stand up in the House of Commons and ask this question to our illustrious Prime Minister, JT. Mr. Speaker, yesterday the independent parliamentary budget officer confirmed what the finance department and leading economists have been saying. In fact, the Conservatives left the Liberals a surplus. But instead, but instead of, of celebrating this achievement, they're playing politics and pretending like it didn't even happen. So, Mr. Speaker, why does the Prime Minister continue to mislead Canadians on basic facts? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, this government supports and applauds the Parliamentary Budget Officer for his uh, excellent work and continue to work with him uh, to demonstrate the level of openness and transparency that all Canadians expect of, uh, from this side of the House. Blah, uh, the blah, fact is blah. we make commitments to invest in Canadians, to give a uh, larger tax-free child benefit uh, to 9 out of 10 Canadian families, and that's exactly what we're Doesn't doing uh, with our uh, investments today. Yeah, yeah. You notice he didn't answer the question. I mean, the whole issue is, why won't you admit there's a surplus? Trudeau's been asked this countless times by people like Rana Ambrose. The finance minister, Bill Morneau, has been asked this countless times. They refuse to admit it. In fact, they deny it. <clears throat> but there's the this pesky little thing called the truth. And these pesky little things called facts. And I want to read to you from uh, a little-known document that's just emailed out to every member of parliament and every journalist in the Capitol and published on the website of the Department of Finance that Bill Morneau oversees. It's called the Fiscal Monitor. And right on the page, it says, The Fiscal Monitor, a publication of the Department of Finance. Hmm. That'd be Bill Morneau's department, wouldn't it? Sounds like it to me. <laughs> All right, so it says, highlights, February 2016 budgetary surplus of $3.2 billion. This is the fiscal monitor for the month of February. So all the tax filings are in, all the expenditures are out. Takes them a while, but they put it all together two months later. It's always two months behind. They say, hey, here's what happened. February 2016, budgetary surplus of $3.2 billion. There was a budgetary surplus of $3.2 billion in February 2016, down $1.4 billion from the budgetary surplus reported for February 2015. Revenues increased by $7 million. Program expenses increased by $1.6 billion, or 7.7%, reflecting increases in major transfers to persons and other levels of government, yada, yada, yada. The next line in the... Fiscal Monitor gives you the year-to-date numbers. April 2015 to April 2016. Budgetary surplus of $7.5 billion. Let me redirect. For the April to February period of the 2015-16 fiscal year, the government posted a budgetary surplus of $7.5 billion compared to a surplus of $5.9 billion for the same period of 2014-15. Hmm. Imagine that. The surplus is even bigger than it was this time last year. Hmm. Who would have thunk that? 
Revenues were up 15.6 billion or 6.2%, reflecting increases in all revenue streams. Program expenses were up 15.3 billion or 7%, reflecting increases in major transfers to persons, other levels of government, and so on. Hmm. Again, I say, hmm. I thought the economy was was so bad we needed a big shot of stimulus. I thought that Stephen Harper was reckless and left them with a with an absolute deficit. Apparently, none of that's true. Apparently, just like John McCallum lying, outright lying to Parliament on the issue of the military incurring expenditures for housing of refugees that never went on military bases, he says that didn't happen. But again, we have documents that prove otherwise. Like Christian Freeland, our international trade minister, who just wanted to go and be on Bill Maher's TV show in Los Angeles and charged her $20,000 so she could do that, then invented reasons for it and said, no, that wasn't the case. We have documents that prove otherwise. And now, with the finance minister and the prime minister refusing to admit that there was a surplus, that the economy was not in such bad shape, we've got documents that prove otherwise. The liberals have only been in power. They've only had the reins of power since November 4th. They only brought out their budget a month ago. So there's no time for them to turn around and say, well, this is all due to us and our stimulus. That that stimulus hasn't even kicked in. The budget hasn't even passed. When an economy is in ill health, government revenues go down. They go down because people aren't working. Companies aren't investing. Companies aren't making money. I know some people think it's weird that when companies aren't making a profit, they don't pay taxes, but it's a tax on profit. It'd be like you being unemployed but paying income tax. You don't have an income. So listen to this. Normally, economies are in bad shape. Tax revenue plummets. The April to February period for 2015-2016. So far, there's only one month to go. But for the first 11 months of the year, personal income tax revenues were up 5.5 billion or 4.5%. Corporate income tax revenues were up 4.6 billion or 13.8%. Non-resident income tax revenues were up 0.2 billion or 3%. Excise and duties were up 3.4 billion or 7.7%. GST revenues increased by 2.3 billion or 7.9%. That GST revenues increasing means people were spending more. We didn't have inflation of 7.9% over the same period last year. People are spending more. People are earning more. Therefore, income tax revenues are up. Corporations are making more profits. Therefore, corporate income tax revenues are up. But the liberals will tell you things are horrible, and therefore they have to put us into $30 billion worth of deficits. And they continue to say this in spite of all evidence to the contrary. There you have it. The third B of the night. The bull crap. What are your thoughts on this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Also take calls on the whole issue of Canadian beef or the courts finally freeing our beer. 
I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at facebook.com slash 580CFRA. Chris writes in about the um, the push against beef. Not so much the Earl's side and the certified humane, but more, um, more the push by politicians, the latest uh, example being Denmark, saying, let's tax meat. We got to tax meat a lot for, do it for the planet. It's for climate change, man. Yeah, can you dig it? Well, Chris writes in and says, I have nothing against a good carrot. No government is going to force me to eat bean curds in lawnmower sauce. I don't even know what that is, but it doesn't sound good, Chris. He goes on, the beef industry will eventually be priced underground. It will get to the point where we have to buy meat from a guy on the corner who whips open his trench coat and has different cuts of beef strapped inside. I hope it's a chilled trench coat at least i mean you don't want the meat spoiling barbara writes in brian i just listened to your interview re-hormones in beef if anyone thinks this is something newly developed by the beef industry to maximize profit they are so wrong it brought to mind my mother telling me about life on the farm when she was a young girl and our father and others put a pellet behind the ear of the cattle to quote make them grow faster unquote my mother is 98 years old Thanks for the email. The email address is beyondthenews at newstalk580cfra. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. Been talking about the issue of firearms a little bit on the show and the, uh, the fact that the RCMP are now trying to claim that, well, guns are, uh, are coming from Canada. Dennis Young is a researcher out of Airdrie, Calgary, used to work here in Ottawa in Gary Breitkreitz's office and is the man that did so much of the research to bring down the gun registry. He did yeoman's work in that fight. He now runs a a website. It's at dennisryoung.ca, dennisryoung.ca. If you're interested in gun issues, well, there's a good chance you're already on Dennis's email list. But he put this, he put in a, an access to information request wanting to know, um, he wanted records and briefing notes, advice to the minister and so on, on where crime guns came from. And they said, well, we, we were unable to locate records to respond to your request. They're out there making claims, saying they know where crime guns come from, and yet they're saying, we don't have anything on this. How do police make these claims? How do the, the Mounties turn around and different organizations of police turn around and say, well, we need to crack down on law-abiding gun owners because that's where most of the guns used in crime come from. Oh, really? Okay, well, you used to say it was more than 90% came from the United States. You used to say that they were all smuggled into the country, and that's why we needed more resources on the border. But recently, they've started to say, no, they they come from in Canada. They're domestically sourced. All right. Give us some stats on this. Their response, 
Based on the information, a search of records was conducted in our holdings. Unfortunately, we were unable to locate records which respond to your request. Strange thing, that. Strange thing. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Earlier today, a lot of kerfuffle around Donald Trump trying to hold, uh, not even hold a rally. He was trying to speak to the Republican Convention for the state of California. This is the California Republican Party trying to go in. They blocked the road. So he had to get out. Drudge has an aerial shot of this right now. He had to get out and walk in with a phalanx of Secret Service personnel around him. Because once you're in the position of one of the top candidates and you have the potential to be president, if nominee of either party, you get full Secret Service detail. They take it very seriously, more seriously than we do. And obviously the threat level is bigger. But just like during the election, Tom Mulcair had an RCMP detail with him. Why? He had a good chance of becoming prime minister. Justin Trudeau had an RCMP detail with him. Why? Good chance of becoming prime minister. Stephen Harper already was, so he had his regular detail. Trump had to walk in from a good distance away because of the the protesters trying to stop him. And I don't think they realize that they just make him stronger. I don't think they realize that their actions make people sympathetic to him, even people that wouldn't normally be. It's going to have the adverse effect. George in Arnbrier calling in about the economy tonight. George, hey, welcome know, to the program. What, you're more skilled than I am. i got a question on the economy. Mm-hmm. If the, as I say, the American economy suddenly collapsed, which yeah. condition would we be better to be in? Uh, surplus or say we owe 30 billion bucks? If the American economy collapsed? Yeah, because it would affect us, right? Which which would we be better to be in, the $30 billion debt? Or, I, or, I, would, I would say surplus because that means we've got money on hand to spend. Yeah, but the $30 billion, who is it going to? It's going to the elite, isn't it? Uh, well, it's going to banks, and um, banks service all of us, George. Yeah, but the $30 billion is not going to help the people. It's going to the people who run the thing, right? Well, so we, they, we borrow it from banks. And then spend it on the people, as you say. Yeah. So, I, I, I don't, I don't know your point here. Well, the point is, if you look at the way they run around Greece over there and all their debt, and the way what happened in Venezuela, they, you, you'd sort of get the idea. Maybe the, the economy is going into collapse, and that's why they took the thirty billion to grab their money where they can. I don't think that uh, the economy is going into collapse at all in Canada. I didn't say um, Canada. The states going to spread from the states to Canada. Why do you think, uh, we got about 30 seconds left, why do you think the states is going to collapse? Well, the states is, is an illusion now because most of their uh, economic data is falsified. Well, I, I know some of it is, especially their employment numbers yeah. are dodgy at best. Dodgy ain't good for it. Dodgy at best, but uh, I, I can't speak to a lot of their statistics. George, thanks for the call. Hey, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. You got something to say on the issues we're talking about tonight? You want to bring up your own Friday free-for-all here on Beyond the News? This is News Talk 580 CFRA. In a world gone mad... 
there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So where do you stand on the issue of the conservative leadership? We have one and a half declared candidates. And now, according to a poll by Main Street Technologies, reported on by Post Media, we've got people saying they prefer Ron Ambrose. They want Ron Ambrose to be the leader of the party. John Iveson writing in the National Post that there is a a draft Rana movement to change the constitution of the Conservative Party and make her the leader. Ambrose has said that she would not seek the permanent leadership of the party. She had said she doesn't want it. And therefore, th- this is what they were all supposed to agree to. If you wanted to be the... Uh, the interim leader, you had to agree not to seek their permanent leadership. Scott Reed, the six-term Ontario MP from just a little bit west of here, he used to represent areas close to Canada, and his riding seems to keep moving further and further west. Scott Reed wants to overturn the article in the Constitution that blocks the interim head from becoming a candidate. He tells Iveson, I supported her for interim leader because I thought she was the best candidate, but she's performed beyond any expectations I could have had. She hasn't made a significant misstep. She's demonstrating her ability to tie together the many branches of our party's family tree, said uh, fellow MP Shannon Stubbs. Apparently, Pierre Polyev is supporting this as well. So, Pierre, if you're out and about in your car and you're listening, give us a call. You know how to get in touch with us. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. In Iveson's piece, he said, uh, Polliver said, it's too early for him to endorse any candidate, but said Ambrose has performed brilliantly and the party should not exclude someone who showed shown undeniable merit. The poll by Main Street Technologies put Ambrose at 26%. 26% a month self-described conservative supporters. That was ahead of Kevin O'Leary, Peter McKay, Tony Clement, and Jason Kenney. So far, only Maxime Bernier and Kelly Leach have declared. Now, Bernier has fully declared. Leach has declared but said she's really just forming an exploratory committee. Michael Chong will apparently announce sometime soon, and Jason Kenney is thinking about it. But that's it so far. What do you think? Is Ron Ambrose doing well enough that you think she should be permanent leader? I, I said on these airwaves last November that we should, she should actually be running for full leader. I thought she should. I thought Michelle Rempel should. Let's have a good old-fashioned showdown and find the best person for the job. And maybe it is Ron Ambrose, but the Constitution currently prohibits that from happening. What are your thoughts? 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. And meanwhile, on CTV's Power Play earlier today, Kevin O'Leary was speaking with, I think it was Don Martin, or no, it was Mercedes hosting today. 
My old pal Mercedes Stevenson was hosting today, and uh, he basically raked the party over the coals and said it's going to keep losing elections unless the old political hacks reinvent the party. I don't know. Let's listen to what he has to say. But I want you to listen with this in mind and listen to all of these people that say the party really needs to, you know, change everything or the party's a disaster. They won more than 30 percent of the vote. They've got about 100 MPs. They are financially stable. They are united. This is the strongest the conservative party has been after spending a decade in power than anyone can remember. And remember, they were in power for a decade. One bad election campaign. Let's listen to O'Leary and what he had to say. Mr. O'Leary, you are in the top dog position as far as people who qualify. You're only behind Ronna Ambrose here. Are you seriously considering going ahead with this and becoming conservative leader? You know, I'm being totally transparent when I tell you this, and I've been saying this now for months. My interests are to affect economic and fiscal policy in Canada, which I consider is being managed ineffectively and competently, in some cases almost fiscal malfeasance. We have a tremendous amount of mediocrity in government when it comes around to managing budgets. And as a Canadian taxpayer, I'm sick of it. I don't like to see my province, Ontario, $308 billion in deficit. I watch money being wasted where I was born in Montreal, giving it to companies like Bombardier without any covenants. I'm just tired of it. I pay taxes that are completely uncompetitive in this country. We're the highest tax jurisdiction personally. In North America, we're uncompetitive. Our young engineers that I teach want to leave Canada because we're protecting them. The whole thing is broken. I'm sick of it. I'm glad my message is getting out there. And one way or another, I'm going to figure out how to fix it. I'm proud of the country. I'm depressed that it's not competitive. And I see so much incompetence, mediocrity, and stupidity when it comes to managing it. I'm just tired of it. Do you, do you think that becoming the leader of the opposition is the best way to fix that? Because you know, you you've put your name out there. I know you've also said you'd consider running for other parties if you thought it was necessary. But people are wondering, is this the way that you fix it? Well, you know, here's the it's an option right now for everybody involved in looking at the Conservative Party. And what's remarkable about this cycle is somehow we've made it happen 18 months before it should be. But I'm happy that we're having the dialogue as a country for the Conservative Party. And I'm not interested in sitting in opposition in perpetuity. And right now, the Conservative Party, as it's constituted, will never get a majority again. Because after the collapse of the NDP, all of those constituents have gone over the Liberals. And so the party has to reinvent itself. If it's willing to do that, we're going to find out over the series of, of a few conventions and gatherings and think tanks. I'm certainly going to be involved in those. If it's willing to be more encompassing, if it's willing to compete, if it's willing to bring in all those constituents it's lost, in its old brand, whatever that was, it certainly didn't work in the last election, then I am interested. But we don't know if that's the heart and soul of the party yet. We're going to find that out over the next 6, 10, 12 months. But I'm very intrigued because if the old political hacks that run that place now think they can take the same strategy forward into the future, they are 100% wrong. They will forever lose elections. And so we've got to find out how much you know, appetite for change is really in the conservative brand. Interesting thought. And I'd like to sit down and talk with him sometime. Because there's a couple of things I like in what he said there and a couple of things I don't. I like that he's more open to just trying to affect change because I think Kevin O'Leary's a powerful voice and I think he has an opportunity. But I think he should bring about the, the change that he wants from outside 
of the party process. It's far more free to be able to snipe at everyone. It's far freer to be just a critic and say, here's the problem. Now here's how to fix it. Once you're in a party political system, things change. But I was disappointed to, to hear him say, well, their brand was awful, whatever that was. They got 5.6 million votes in the last election. Yes, fewer than the liberals. They won 31.9% of the popular vote. Again, yes, less than the liberals. But that's after three successful elections. The conservatives have a solid base to grow from. And the worst thing that you can do is throw away your base in order to attract a new type of voter. Let me tell you that that will not work. That will only lead to, well, NDP status. So you find a way to grow without alienating everyone that got you there. You find a way to grow by convincing people that you're right on issues. You find a way to grow by convincing people the lies that the other side tells you just aren't true or tells about you just aren't true. That's how you grow. It'll be interesting to see if he shows up at the conservative convention. And do remember that I'm out there at the end of uh, May and trying to work it out to bring you beyond the news from the floor of the convention hall as the conservatives gather in Vancouver to figure out where to go from here one year before the leadership vote. So that's the end of May. By the way, if you want to meet up with me next week, I will be speaking uh, to the Canada Carleton Conservative Association uh, on issues related to federal politics. That'll be next week. I'll be figuring out the speech in the coming days. Uh, that You can either contact the, uh, the association or I believe it's at Don Cherry's again. So just like the... Just like the uh, the lesser thing that's on tomorrow with Rob Snow at uh, 12.30. I mean, Snowman's no B-Lil, but he's all right. Uh, Snowman, Councillor Jody Minnick, Councillor Stephen Blay, hosted by Councillor Alan Hubley. They're all going to be out there tomorrow at 12.30. But over breakfast at 8.30, I believe it is, on May 7th, I'll be out there speaking to the uh, the Kanata Carlton Conservatives. So come on out. Uh, Gloria is on the line. You want to join the conversation, by the way. It's 521-TALK, 521-8255. Gloria, you're on Beyond the News. Well, you know what? That's just wonderful. <laughs> Listen, I just want to tell you very, mm-hmm. very, very, very quickly that I did drop off an envelope to you this afternoon. Oh, at uh, here at the station? Right at the station, yes. I will look that up. Thank you. Okay. Now, the thing is, you know, let the Trudeau... Continue, he lies and he continues to lie doesn't uh, really surprise me. I mean, you know, it's the simple fact that Harper told the truth when he said he'd left uh, a surplus of, of $3.2 billion. It's there and black and white, and yet Trudeau continues Seven, to deny this. $7.5 billion and counting. When was this? I thought it was three point two billion. Three point two is just for the month of February. Oh, it's the month of February. Oh, excuse me. Okay. The the the, the, the eleven months of because there's one year, oh, one month left to go. Yeah. They haven't counted all of March's numbers yet, and oh. that's the last month in the fiscal year. Oh. April to February, it's seven point five billion dollars surplus. Does that sound like a deficit to you? Is it a rounding error or what? Because to know, them, it's you know, it's fiction. I'll, 
I'll, I'll tell you, um, there, there, there's, there's no uh, hardly any words. Like I struggle to find words that would fit the category that, that Trudeau is in, because he's he's sly, he's deceitful, and he lies. That's that's about the the biggest compliment that I can give him. <laughs> and you well, know, did you he, just hear him talk past Ambrose's question? Oh, I don't. It's, it's I'll tell you something. Um, even before I'm, I'm going to say these words at, at the very end of my little. Uh, uh, diatribe here, but I'm just going to say, even before when Trudeau was campaigning, it was obvious his 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 deceit was obvious because even before the election, out when I was out campaigning, his his close uh, uh, political campaign advisor, a close, and that's a key word. I think it was Mr. Gagne was was emailing, uh, giving detailed emails to the National Energy Corporation of who to lobby, how to lobby, when to yep. lobby, and 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 when Trudeau was asked about this, he oh he's open. He said oh he's open and transparent, and <laughs> and, and claimed that he didn't know that his close advisor had done this. Oh my! Did he walk around with 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 uh, uh, plugs in his ears and 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 uh, you know dark 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 glasses so we couldn't see anything and hear anything? You know, I mean, this open and transparent baloney that Trudeau quotes so often that it's ad nauseum to me is, is how uh, and and how open his government is to me it's nothing but verbal diarrhea. You know what he sounded like uh, in in uh, denying Gagne Gloria. Mm. No. From a great movie. I'm shocked. Shocked to find yes. out there's gambling going on in yes. here. Thanks for the call. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. You want to join the talk? You want to get in on the conversation? 521-TALK. 521-8255-STAR-580. If you're listening from out of town, it's 1-800-580-CFRA. Some days... The resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Just watching the uh, CNN promoting the Anderson Cooper 360 special on We Got Him. Bin Laden's death. It airs next Monday. That'll be fascinating to see. Five years. Five years since that happened. Actually, I should have remembered that. We um, we launched Sun News in the middle of an election campaign, an election campaign that we weren't expecting, but it, you know, it helped. It had us cut our teeth in a new format. Um, and so we launched on... April the 18th, the election, I believe, was we had a royal wedding, and then the election was a day or two after, and overnight is when they got bin Laden. So we had to scramble in a new situation, and and talk to anybody in the news business, talk to people that were CTV at the time, talk to people that were CBC. It was very busy and very news heavy, and everyone's, you know, what, they got bin Laden? I think it was a Sunday night. I'd just flown into Toronto. Uh, no, sorry, my colleague had. I was still waiting to, to go. And uh, in the news broke that they'd gotten bin Laden. And everyone just scrambled, scrambled everywhere, trying to figure out, uh, what, you know, what was happening. Was it for real? Is this something that uh, that we can confirm? 
And like I said, we've just covered royal wedding, and we're trying to get ready to cover an election. And let me tell you, I don't care how big your organization is. Preparing to cover an election is a big undertaking. There's a lot of planning that goes in. There's a lot of prep work. There's a lot of going over binder after binder of information on not only the national candidates, the prime ministers and so on, but also key races across the country. Five years ago, we got bin Laden. Wow. I was thinking about this the other day. I was um, Actually, it was this morning. Driving my oldest to school. He'll soon be 16. 9-11 happened not long after he was born. He doesn't remember a time without terrorism. I mentioned that to him and he said, that must have been really nice not to have to think about these things. It's not like terrorism is something that eats away at you each and every day. But it kind of lingers, and now and again it, it pops back up because there'll be another attack. There'll be a beheading of a Canadian at a dark spot on the other side of the world. There'll be an explosion go off, and it reminds you that it's still there in a way that it wasn't before. I know we had the USS coal bombings in 98. I know that there were other smaller acts of terrorism. But 9-11 really really did change things. Uh, Back before then, there used to be a TV show that I loved watching. And I want to play you a little bit of the music. I'm sure many of you are going to recognize it because if you're a political junkie, you watch political junkie shows like this. Great music from the West Wing. It was a fantastic show for several years. Like many shows, by the end it started to wane. But it um, it was so well written. It was so smart. And I remember people that I, I worked with in politics saying, yeah, the difference between the West Wing and real life politics is no one in politics is that smart. Those characters were all super smart. I tend to disagree. I've met a lot of smart people in all the different parties, and um, we do attract some good people. But I think uh, I think Aaron uh, Sorkin and Tommy Shlami really made them. Uh, the pattern in that program was amazing. Well, one of the key actors in that was Allison Janney. She played um, the press secretary for many years. Well, Mark Smith from AP reports that today she got to actually do that. Everyone, good afternoon. On the day before the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner, the woman at the briefing room podium was not the press secretary, but used to play one on TV. I'm better at this than he is. Not real-life spokesman Josh Ernest, but Allison Janney, known to fans of the West Wing as irreverent C.J. Craig. Janney was actually here for an event on opioid abuse. Prevention and recovery. Research shows it works. But a reporter couldn't resist. Who is President Josiah Bartlett backing in the election? I think you know the answer to that question. Fans will also remember Bartlett as a passionate Democrat. Mark Smith at the White House. Now, Josiah Bartlett was a passionate Democrat, but he's the type of Democrat that unfortunately doesn't come around very often. He was a Democrat that 
that took action. The Democrats have, have changed, just like our liberal party has changed. The progressive movement has bitten deeper into it and pulled it further to the left. I know people like to talk about, oh, the Republicans have become far right. What about the far left lurch of the Democrats or our liberals? Why is that never an issue? Mostly because the media are left wing. Always remember that. But not here. Not on the mighty 580. Call now. 521-TALK. 521-8255. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We're here to stop Donald Trump and to make clear that we're building a movement that's going to take direct action to stop his racist demagoguery and the ways in which he's been encouraging racist attacks. Oh, 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 young lady, young lady, young lady. That's protester Yvette Fierlikov. Fierlikov. Do you fear her? I don't know. One of the many people showing up at the the protest outside the Republican National Convention. This is an organized movement, folks. We know this. And you know my thoughts on Donald Trump. Not a huge fan. Not my choice for who should be leading the fight to beat Hillary Clinton. That's what this is all about. Beating Hillary Clinton. Reversing Obama's progressive utopia. But Trump is most likely to be the nominee. It's hovering at around 70% chance that he'll be the nominee. When I see 70% chance it's going to rain, I assume it's going to rain. But what do these protesters do to your thoughts of Donald Trump? These attempts to shut him down, these attempts to say, this man's so evil, he shouldn't be allowed to, to speak. This man's bad. He should, he should not be allowed to go on. We can't let him in, into this hotel We can't let him do anything. Well, what does that make you think? What does that, how does that change your opinion? Or does it change your opinion of Donald Trump? Does it make you more sympathetic to him? Even if you're a supporter already, or if you were opponent, does it make you say, you know what? Enough already. Give up. Let the guy speak. And enough with these organized, well-paid, well-funded, Attacks by the left. The, the left loves to talk about the billionaires that support the right. And can't, in, in the U.S., there's some of that. But by the way, the Democrats have more billionaires. In successive elections, this is true. And in Canada, the wealthy, for the most part, it's old money. And old money always supports left-wing causes for reasons that I don't understand. They support causes that their ancestors that actually made the money that they live off would would never, ever support. So what do these things do to you? How do they make you feel about Donald Trump? Do they change your opinion of him at all? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Let's play another clip. This is the other young protester. This is um, Angela... Dantsev, again, at the rally, accusing Trump of being racist. 
Donald Trump is using this political platform to really draw out the hatred, uh, you know, from far right wing people in this country. Again, let me say, I don't think it's being driven by hatred. You look at polling data going back decades, and Americans in both parties have wanted something done about illegal immigration. Illegal immigration. People pouring across the border. Now, once upon a time, both sides used to pay lip service to it. Then the Democrats started embracing illegal immigrants as undocumented workers. For various reasons, a lot of people that were still upset by this continue to vote Democrat. Because maybe it wasn't their number one issue. But then the Republicans started going weak on it as well. The Republicans started to be like the Democrats. Yeah, pay a little bit of lip service, but not actually do anything. So Trump comes along and says he wants to, wants to deal with this. He wants to deal with people like Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, who killed Kate Steinle, who was just out for a walk on a pier. Just out for a walk with her parents on a beautiful summer night. And he found a gun that apparently belonged to, uh, apparently belonged to a federal agent and shot her and killed her. This is a man who had been ordered deported five times. This is a man who had been ordered out of the United States time and again and instead went to Sanctuary City in San Francisco, where these young people are protesting Donald Trump today, and said, you know what? I'm going to stay here. Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez decided to stay in San Francisco because he knew they would not deport him. He had committed seven felonies. He had seven felony convictions. Four of them for drug offenses. He was deported in 2009, went back into the country, arrested again, still not deported. The sheriff in San Francisco said, yeah, we weren't going to inform uh, the immigration department that he's there because we're sanctuary city. That's something that's coming to Canada, by the way. Vancouver's moving that way. I believe Edmonton has. It's going to spread. It will come here to Ottawa where... Even if they find out that someone is in the country illegally, they give them government services and they help them hide. They never turn anyone in. And I'm not talking about making sure that kids are fed. I'm talking about people like Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, someone convicted of seven different felony offenses in the United States of America, deported multiple times, the officials in San Francisco knew his entire record, and they let him go. They let him walk free, even though they knew there was a deportation order out against him. And then he kills a woman. I covered another story last year for Truth of Volt on this very matter. Someone who had been uh, deported several times, I believe this one was five, driving drunk out of his tree up a highway, hit a woman and her two children. The woman and one child had to be airlifted to the hospital. 
I don't actually remember if they ended uh, they ended up surviving or if either one of them succumbed to their injuries. But it was serious. So when Donald Trump says that there are things happening in the United States, crimes being committed by illegal aliens, by illegal immigrants, he's not lying. The statistics back it up. It's there. It's real. Americans are dealing with it. People that are trying at the bottom runs of the economic ladder are dealing with it because the illegal immigrants do undercut everybody else. Why? They live in the shadows. They're not there legally. They'll work for whatever they can get. So if you are a poor black, a poor Hispanic, a poor white in America, and race very much matters in their politics, far more than here, you're SOL. You've got no one to speak up for you. And now along comes this guy and says, I'll put a stop to it, I'll build a wall, we'll make it work. Do these protesters trying to shut them down, these professional paid protesters, this organized left-wing attempt, does it change your view of them? 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. Chris, in Ottawa West, you're calling about lyrics to O Canada? Yes. Hi, Brian. Hi. What about the lyrics to O Canada? Well... These people here in Canada, these uh, socialists and left-wingers that want to change the words to old Canada, they they want to make it so-called non, uh, non-sexist by mm-hmm. changing the words. Well, you know what? Half of those people don't even sing old Canada. They don't. Uh, they are. They don't stand out of attention during old Canada, and and the other half. Uh, I, I I think a, a size, sizable percentage of them are dead against national anthems and and conventionalities like standing at attention. You know, the progressives are just so skeptical of everything from the past, including uh, things like standing at attention, singing for, Hey, even just standing up for the national anthem, Chris. Never mind yeah. standing at attention, just getting off your butt. You know, and you know, they're this is they call themselves progressives, but you know what they really are is they're skeptics of everything. This Absolutely. is true. Everything hey, under the sun. Have you have you been uh, down east or out west when the national anthems played? And by out west, I don't mean Vancouver. I mean let's let's reduce it to just the prairie provinces or down in the Maritimes when the national anthems played. Well, when I was a kid, yeah. Well, let me tell you, I was there a a couple of years ago with Prime Minister Harper on an election tour. Yeah. And people stand in both uh, both parts of the country, in the Maritimes and in uh, the Prairie Provinces. And it's quite something. Now, I was at an event in Charlottetown and everyone stood and the media were already standing because there were no chairs for us and there was nowhere for people to sit. Now, I would always stand for O Canada. But then a few days later, we're out at a, a, a linseed farm in the middle of nowhere Saskatchewan in a drive shed. A drive shed is just this huge barn for all the heavy equipment, but they've, they've moved it out for the rally. And you've got hundreds and hundreds of people in there, candidates from all over, and they play O Canada. Most of the media stood. I was standing next to um, 
a friend of mine who works for a different media organization. We're two of the only ones standing, and the media pit is getting the devil's eye. We are, we thought we might not get out of here alive. They might lynch every single member of the media because some of them were on their phones, some of them had their feet up, they're chewing gum, they're sitting talking, but they weren't standing for the national anthem. Yeah. You know, it's an acquired taste, you know, to stand up uh, and show respect for your country and take the time to sing the song and and to stand at attention. And but the thing is, it's like riding a bicycle. The first time you ride a bicycle, you're kind of shaky and you're kind of nervous. And but when you when you practice, you learn better. It's the same with anything like uh, singing uh, Old Canada, standing at attention. You feel foolish at first because you're in the minority. But then you realize, you know what? We have a great country. It's not perfect, but we have to honor our those who came before us, who built this country, and we have to sustain this beautiful country and keep it going. You know? Uh, absolutely. Now, you know? I, I'm up against a commercial break, Chris. So I'll, I'll let you go, but keep listening because when we come back, I'll tell you a story about progressives from another country that stand up not only for their national anthem, but when their leader walks into the room. Back in moments. Thanks for listening, Chris. I'm Brian Lilly. This is uh, Beyond the News. Five to one talk if you want to join the conversation. Back in moments. Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. You'll want to join the conversation at 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. Now, I, um, I opened talking about the three Bs. I still welcome your calls on this. Do you have thoughts on the court striking down the provincial trade barriers to beer that say it's actually illegal for you to bring beer from one province to another. By the way, that'll apply to wine and lots of other things. I think this is fantastic news. I know it's already accepted practice in in Ottawa to go over to Hull or Gatineau or what, Elmer, go to the beer king, le roi de beer, and, uh, and buy you know, as much as you can, go to the Costco and get the big cubes, all of that. I know people do that. I know Quickie advertises. Every time I go into a Quickie, I laugh because there is the uh, the little poster, their beer prices in Quebec, and then directions to the nearest Quickie. But that's illegal. I know they weren't enforcing it. I know they said there were no uh, no actual penalties, but it was illegal. Now that's going to be done away with thanks to this court decision. Do you have thoughts on that? Do you have thoughts on a big restaurant chain saying they won't serve Canadian beef because Canadian beef isn't good enough for them? I think that's ridiculous, and I want to know what their two locations here in Ottawa down in Lansdowne are doing. Those are the two Bs. Then the third B, no, not B, Lil, bullcrap from the Liberals, denying that there is a, a surplus, even as their own finance department says, $7.5 billion. Now, just before I get to Tom waiting on the line, I do want to say, um, you know, he was talking about the left not wanting to stand for the anthem, not wanting to sing the anthem. You go to the U.S., and I've been in several press conferences with presidents. I've been in them here and down in the States. Um, 
And it doesn't matter where the American press corps is. I remember being in the Pearson building on Sussex Drive here in Ottawa. George W. Bush walked in with Paul Martin. The American press corps all stood up. Why? Their commander-in-chief just walked into the room. Do you think any of them really loved George W. Bush? No. But when the president walks into the room, it does not matter who it is. They stand. They stand for their anthem. They stand for their president. It is a show of respect. That's what we should be doing for our anthem. It is a show of respect. You can't sit there and say you live in the greatest country in the world and then, eh, you're going to sit and chew gum. Tom in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, hi, Brian. I heard oh, your last... it's the, it is this, Tom Harris. Yeah, that's right, international climate science. Uh, I heard your last caller say that the left were skeptical of everything. Well, unfortunately, they're selectively skeptical. <laughs> and, a great, and a great example of that is last night at the Glebe Community Center was Catherine McKenna's climate change consultation. And, you know, if you go to her Twitter webpage for the Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, you can see excerpts of it and all the discussion. And I'll tell you, it sound, it's a pep rally. In fact, that's exactly what it was. It wasn't really a serious consultation. And I listened to some of her speeches and I listened to the people. And on this issue, the left are pathetically gullible. Okay, they seem to think, in fact, they keep saying that Canada has to stop climate change due to dangerous carbon pollution. You know, they don't use their brains. It's almost as if the left have abandoned their complete skepticism they usually have for all sorts of issues on climate change. Well, it's, like multi, it's like multiculturalism. Tom, they have stopped thinking. Before we run out of time, I just want to throw out and get your reaction. Last night, I said that, um, you know, I looked to the scientists that tell me that global warming stopped in 1998. And I cited the U.N., Michael Mann, the Met Office in London. Someone listening online said, your views are dangerous. Where do you get this information? Yeah, all I have to do is look at the satellite record. I mean, there really hasn't been any warming, as you said, in, what, about 18 years. And, you know, so it's ridiculous that the left actually shoot themselves in the foot. They want money for social programs. But around the world, they're spending a billion dollars a day on what might happen to the climate in 50 years. And, you know, if you really put that to a left winger and you say, does that mean that it's more important what might happen in 50 years than poor people today? They're tongue-tied. They can't really answer it. <laughs> so they have become totally gullible on this climate issue. And Catherine McKenna, I mean, she really sounds like a, a, well, a teenage cheerleader. It, it, it's a bit like the uh, the whole uh, ban the cars from the Byward Market uh, cheerleading session they had the other day. Thanks for the call, Tom. 521-TALK, 521-8255, Star 580 on Bell Mobility. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back in moments. Insurgent, believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. I popped outside during the break, and um, you know this woman that wants to ban cars in the Byward Market. I don't get it. There's a guy out across the street showing off one of his. Uh, you know, it's like an old muscle car. I I I had to literally run, so I didn't get a chance to look at exactly what it was. But were I to guess, probably like a. An old 
Dodge Challenger or something like that, in, in that vein, of that era in that vein. People are gathered around looking at it. People are checking out motorcycles. Pedestrians are everywhere. It's just a, it's a beautiful night in the market. And there's a buzz going on. And there's no problems for pedestrians. Pedestrians are everywhere. They rule the roost down here. And you got this woman coming up from New York saying, ban cars in the Byward Market. It's a great birthday present for your 150th. Now, you got a great birthday present from us, didn't you? We paid you to come here and tell us what to do. But something very cool outside as I walked over, uh, walked around the corner was um, <clears throat> there's always buskers. And it is a new busker. I don't recognize this guy. When you're down here a lot, you get to recognize the buskers, just like you get to recognize the beggars. And uh, this guy was playing on guitar. To me, it sounded like the theme song from The Godfather. That's what I think it was. It sounded a little different because he's playing it on guitar, but he was putting the guitar through some effects. Anyway, I liked it through some change in his uh, guitar case for sure. 521-TALK, 521-8255 if you want to join the conversation. But asking about a lot of things tonight, the three Bs, the the beer, the beef, and the bull crap put out by the liberals on denying that there's a deficit, or sorry, denying there's a surplus, claiming there's a deficit when their own finance department says, nah, a $7.5 billion surplus. Uh, that's kind of awkward for you, don't you think? And then Donald Trump. Do these protesters that try and shut Trump down, do they change how you look at them? For better or for worse? Do you say, yeah, those people are right. That guy's, he's fomenting racism. Or do you say, give it up already. Give it up. You're making me like the guy. I mean, the, the biggest appeal to Trump for me are all the people that hate him. And you know that if I were able to cast a ballot in a primary in the United States, it would not be for him. But his biggest appeal to me are all the people that hate him. All the right people hate this guy. What are your thoughts? 521-TALK, 521-8255 or star 580 on Bell Mobility. Bob in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Good evening, Brian. Evening. Your thoughts on Donnie Trump? Well, I'd like to touch on three related points if I could. First, his stance on illegal immigration, Mm -hmm. why he has been popular to date in this process, and number three, his chances versus Hillary in the fall. So, Okay. Quickly run through those if I could and get your thoughts as well. First of all, with respect to illegal immigration, the number one priority for any national leader, and in particular I would say the U.S. Commander-in-Chief, is to safeguard the country. And if you do not have secure borders, you do not have safety for your populace. So this is really what he's trying to promote. And his comments have been very clear. What he's opposing is illegal immigration, not immigration in general, something that is not generally picked up by the mass media. And and I get that. And I've actually done um, appearances on American media talking about how to change the conversation so that you're not just talking about immigration, but illegal immigration versus immigration. Because the conservatives in this country were very tough, very tough on people trying to cheat the system And yet, until this last election, and I I would argue they still carried a a big chunk of the immigrant vote in the last election, 
But over three successive elections, they did very well with immigrants while cracking down on cheats and frauds and bogus claims. And you make a very good point. And if you look at the situation stateside, I think it's worth pointing out that many of the supporters of the status quo in the U.S. when it comes to the border are really attempting to provide less expensive labor for many of the corporate interests that support them. So this is one of the untold stories, the beneficiaries of illegal immigration. So that's number one. Uh, The second point is, why has Trump been popular to date? And I would say the root of it is that the U.S. federal system has been ineffective for most Americans for at least a generation. And I think this was really well manifested in the recent federal budget agreement in the states. And long story short, the Democrat and Republican congressional leaders came to an agreement whereby essentially the Democrats said, if you'll support my corporate interests, I will support yours. They reached an agreement, and the interests of the donor and lobbyist class were well met. Unfortunately, it came at a cost of several hundred billion incremental dollars to the U.S. taxpayer. So the definition of success in the U.S. congressional system completely avoids what's best for the U.S. People in general. And I get what you're saying. Here's where Trump starts to worry me is that some of the key players in in, in those deals that you're talking about, and I'm, I'm looking at Paul Ryan, I'm looking at John Boehner, are saying great things about Trump now. John Boehner, who helped, you know, you, you had folks like Ted Cruz and people like him uh, in the House of Representatives where Boehner was speaker trying to stand up and say, no, we won't do this, and Boehner undercut them. He undercut the Tea Party. He undercut the Conservative Caucus. He under, uh, undercut people that stood for you know, restoring sanity to, to the budget process at every turn. And, and now his hand-picked su- successor, Paul Ryan, is turning around and saying, Donald Trump and I share the same values. Ah. Well, I think you make a good point, and I'd say that they recognize that Trump is is the presumptive nominee, much as you stated. And second, that Trump is, at the end of the day, a pragmatist. And whatever his other qualities, and I'm not necessarily keen about all of them, Mm -hmm. I think he may have the ability to deal with both sides of the aisle and actually get something done. And, And to some extent, I think this is one of the issues... Uh, that leads to some of the protests, etc. Trump absolutely terrifies the donor and lobbyist class because he is not beholden to them, as are virtually all the other candidates, since he is self-funded and really has no particular obligation to any of them. Um, all right, and, and then your your last point on Trump? First, his, chan- his chances against Hillary. Mm-hmm. And I think much has been made of the fact he has high negatives, which is true, the person with the second highest negatives is Hillary. Absolutely. I, I don't think Hillary is a great candidate for the Democrats, but uh, the last time there have been more than 40 polls, I believe now, yeah. since mid-February. In mid-February was the last time that Donald Trump led Hillary Clinton in a general election matchup poll. And that that has to worry anybody that wants to make sure that the, the legacy of Barack Obama is taken down and taken apart. 
And you're, again, you're right. And there are other polls which have suggested that Trump will have a difficult time versus Clinton. And there's something to that. There like 40 of them. Yeah, <laughs> but it's worth remembering that Ronald Reagan faced a double-digit deficit going into the fall when he was facing Jimmy Carter's re-election bid. And obviously he overcame that. And I would make the point that to this stage, Trump has spent very, very little on paid media. It's all been earned. Mm -hmm. And when the conversation changes and starts to take a look at some of the history of the Clinton regime, Bill's history, Hillary's, the tens of millions of dollars earned in speaking engagements from various interests, and then you start to contrast that with, like it or not, a very telegenic Trump family with very articulate spokespeople in Ivanka and his son, uh, Don. Don Jr., yep. I, I think the narrative may change, and I frankly would not have thought this possible several months ago, but I think this may be a closer election uh, than I mean, we now think. I, I, I don't, don't doubt that for a minute. We'll see if he can get through the convention, and I think it will be a contested convention, and th there is nothing illegitimate about that. And I know he'll make the case, but Bob, let me ask you this. I, I got to run to other calls, but let me ask you this. It sounds to me like you have worked in professional politics in the past. N not really. I'm no? very much interested, but not a professional okay. in the business. You, you, you seem to know an awful lot on the inside. Thanks for the call and the insight. Great My talking pleasure. to you. All right, let's go to uh, Mike in Ottawa calling in about banning cars and climate change. Mike, I... I have to tell you, I was just outside in the in the market. It's bustling. It's fun. It's humming. There's cars. There's people. There's everything. There's no problem. Well, I lived on the market for 13 years. I was a superintendent on the market. Oh, really? Like in, in an apartment building? Yeah, right at the corner of Clarence and Dalhousie, that whole new new section there. Okay. There's 19 apartments there above the stores, and I took care of them for 19 years. Nice. And... Started about, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. They've been trying to ban the cars and motorcycles. They even applied to the provincial government to ban all motorcycles from the market. They, they, they've been talking for years about banning the cars from the market. Okay, who though? Who? The city. The city? They want to they they make the market a safe haven for all the government employees. That's why they're putting all the condos <laughs> down there and everything. And then they have their own little playground. No cars can come in. No motorcycles. They've been trying for years to ban them. And the provincial government, because it's provincial, right, that they, they can't just do that as a city. They have to have permission from the provincial government. So the provincial government keeps shutting them down. But okay. They keep trying. They'll be quiet for a few years. And I, I haven't heard that from the city. Yeah, but... Uh, Anyway, on on um, what was that? on climate change? Yeah, it's such a shame. I I heard that when they made that Paris Agreement, mm -hmm. all the countries that sign in on the agreement have to pay. I think it's a hundred and billion hundred billion dollars a year into that organization. I don't think Canada's cut will be that big because that is more than a third of our federal budget. It's it's crazy. The whole thing though is so crazy because it's all a myth and we're spending billions of dollars oh don't say it's a myth frank or or mike just because uh 
sorry, Frank's waiting on the line. Just because uh, the United Nations says we haven't had warming since 1998, don't call it a myth. Yeah. With the, I just wanted to mention something quickly with Donald Trump. I've been watching the whole thing faithfully. And see, he's tapped into the angst of the people who are fed up with the establishment and all the corruption. Mm-hmm. He hasn't started on Hillary yet. She's so corrupt. Wait until he starts on her, boy. Well, He'll beat her hands down. And you know what? The GOP and Cruz and Kasich and the media have done everything to try to stop him. And the more they try to tarnish him, the more the people vote for him because they know that he's going to fix the problems there. I'll, I'll tell you this. Peter Schweitzer's book, Clinton Cash, is being made into a movie that will come out before the election. And I'm trying to book um, uh, Peter Schweitzer for next week. Uh, he's in a, an editor with Breitbart. He's written extensively elsewhere. Uh, you know, it, it'll be fascinating to see what kind of impact that has. Thanks oh, for the call, Mike. Great. Thanks. All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More of your calls, your emails when we get back. You want to talk to B Lil? Five two one talk five two one eight two five five. Back in minutes. A rebel, you know it. Beyond the news with Brian Lilly, News Talk five eighty CFRA. Winding down the show for the night and the week. You're with B-Lil until uh, the top of the hour. And Gary in Centertown, you're on Beyond the News. Yes. Brian. Yes. I'm painting a leopard right now, and oh. it looks like a horse. You're painting a leopard because that looks like a horse. what you guys are talking about. What? Listen. Listen to me. You didn't hear D- uh, Donald Trump's speech last night, did you? Uh, uh, he gave uh, a speech at a rally. He also gave a foreign policy well, it was speech. Couple, like, maybe a couple of nights ago. Okay. Where he talked about General Pershing. That's the key to the whole thing. Okay. Fill me in, Frank. Okay. Or Gary. Gary, you better better get me straight after all this. Yeah. Anyway, what happened was General Pershing says, I'm pissed off with all you guys who are trying to cut us up here. This is all the bad Arabs he was talking about. So he got all his bullets and he killed a boar and he threw all the bullets into the boar. And mixed it all up with the blood. Loaded up all his army's guns with that, those bullets. Went out and shot all the, the boys. Now, why, why do you think that happened? I can't tell you why, but I know why. Anyway, because Sharif Idria Shah was on my board at one time. And he was a grand sheik of all the Sufi good ones. And I, I'm going to leave you now and finish my uh, leopard. Okay. But I want you to get in touch with me off the line, and I want to tell you something. And you've got my my number there and my number in my email that I sent you about the Wounded Warriors. Okay. So if you will, get in touch with me. If you won't, I guess we'll have to wait for a little while. Yeah. I'm not sure the General Pershing story is true. Absolutely true. But your point. Absolutely true. Hey, my point? Yeah. I can't tell you that. That's the point. Okay. When he came up with the story, I can tell you off the line. I knew that he knew what was caught, what was going on. I, because I, Sharif Adria Shah told me the same story. I will go check that out. Thanks for the call, Gary. Let's go to uh, Frank in Greeley. Frank, you're on hey, Beyond the News. Doing, Brian? 
friend. Good evening. Um, oh, geez, you're talking about a, a, a Challenger. Well, yeah, I had one. 1970 Challenger Dodge. Oh, Dodge Challenger. Challenger. Oh, yeah. So, suddenly I switched to the government plane, the, the Challenger, unit. and I thought you had a Challenger plane, Frank, in green. <laughs> no, the car, that is. Okay, go. The Dodge Challenger car, yeah. At any rate, uh, you know. Any You're case, calling in about Trump, though. What's yeah, your thoughts? Yeah, like I think uh, make a great uh, president for the states. Uh, you know, like you know what happened with uh, Clinton uh, previously, and uh, like her husband like they had problems there. You know, stuff like this. And uh, well, like Saunders is a little too old, Brian. You know, I don't think it's gonna happen. <laughs> I, I, I love J- Jimmy Kimmel had a great line, Frank. He he hold, held up a picture of uh, Bernie Sanders, and it said, yeah. "Can I live eight more years? Let's find out together." <laughs> he should retire. Should get out of there. He, no, he like, would be the oldest president ever elected. He'd be older than when Reagan retired. Yeah, you see, like so, you know, but he's got a great character. Like maybe he, he's he an, foolish, but he's not. No, he, no, no. He's an. He's an interesting cat, much like you, Frank. He is. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt he would be the next uh, president. All right. Thanks for the call, my right friend. On, man. Let's go to Guy, the Capital Voice. Last voice. I don't know what's happening there. There we go. Last word to Guy. You're on the air now. Callers like Bob. My goodness. Now that is a great call. Those are the people that are talking about you online, Brian, but aren't calling in. I congratulate Bob. I think that was probably that was, one of the a, best calls that I've very heard intelligent all week call. on any show regarding Trump. Thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very, very good call. Look, Guy, you've, you've heard my thoughts on Trump before. Not my preferred nominee. But would he be a better president than, than Hillary Clinton? Absolutely. Would he be a better president than – well, I hope so anyway. Would he be a be- better president than Barack Obama? Absolutely, I hope so. I, I've said my left shoe would do a better job than Obama has. I think my left shoe would do a better job than Hillary Clinton would. So the, the simple, let's hope that Donald Trump does. The simple fact that he recognized as well that the lobbyists and the donors are so scared of Trump because he's not beholding to them, I thought was yeah. great. I mean, and the fact that my they're worry, start though, bringing is that all the dirt about, about Hillary. This, he, this could be very close. He was a lobbyist and donor to all sides. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying is yeah. that the, the political elites on both sides, both Republicans and Democrats, are scared to help because they've never seen anything like him before. And I think it proves, like Anthony Fury actually and John John Robson said today, uh, that the Americans um, are very, very mad right now. They know that nothing's getting done in in Washington. They're fed up with it. And the fact that he has brought the race card in with regards to the illegal immigrants um, is very, very interesting because it does benefit corporate America for cheap labor, but it infuriates the right because it sees the jobs going, uh, you know, going that way. But Uh, unfortunately, it's a pile on on the right that, you know, the... uh the, the, business, the Chamber of Commerce types that like it. And and so both sides are dirty on that issue. Maybe you can clean it up. We'll see. All right. Thanks for the call, guy. That wraps the show for this week. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for participating, for the emails, for the calls. And if you miss anything, check out the podcast. If 
you didn't miss anything, but you see the podcast on social media, share it. Let your friends know. That way they can tune in next week. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Thanks to Stephen Ellsworth for working the board, working my sound, and dealing with my insanity all week. See you Monday.